and welcome to episode 205 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We're amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky. And this podcast is for anyone else uh, who likes going out under the stars. Uh, Shane, we, we just finished recording with Don McColls and uh, we had some audio trouble there at the end. Hey. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully the, um, hopefully the edits, uh, you know, got rid of kind of the, the, the worst part of it and, and made it an enjoyable listen, but I really enjoyed talking to Don. It was a lot of fun. He's a phenomenal observer. Uh, he's been doing it for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I always, uh, I always appreciate, um, like you and I were having a little bit of a discussion before we hit the record button here. Um, you know, I really appreciate these folks that just get out and observe and it's not as much about the gear. It's really just about the observations. And, um, you know, I, I really would like to get into a a conversation about comet hunting, uh, with Don, Mm -hmm. um, like he referred to it, I think a few times as a systematic approach. I know uh, know, I really wanted to go there and yeah, we were running a little low on time and I thought I would try to work it in a little, and then the audio dropped out again. And I guess that's, you know, Shame on me for trying to push things a little too far <laughs> with the technology. No, know. it's uh, it's too bad, but uh, uh, I think we'll probably have another conversation with Don in the future, which would I be hope so. amazing. Because um, yeah, I'm I'm very curious about comet hunting. It's something I've thought about. It I've read a, a little bit about how you do it, but it would be amazing to hear from probably the you know the greatest or the 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 most uh, well known. A visual comet discoverer of our time, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it'd be very interesting to hear his approach and, and method. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, it would, it would be, yeah, just, just really neat. Um, and, and I wouldn't mind chatting a little bit more about, uh, his equipment. I mean, he has photos on his website, uh, Um, and, and there's like a whole section of like all the telescopes he's had over the years. And I almost wouldn't mind having that up and saying, okay, tell us about this. Tell it like, you know, just let it, letting him drill down. Like he did on the two or three, I guess he talked about three telescopes, but um, he's had so many more and it would be, it would be really neat to, to kind of get his uh, just, just his own like sort of personal um, take on those and his own personal take, like you said, on comet hunting and, and just some of like, like the, the philosophy he kind of touched on a bit too there, which, which I think is hugely important. Like you said about not as much of a focus on the gear. Like he said, Oh, I didn't spend any money. I won't spend much money on equipment. I, I just like to do this. And, uh, and, you know, and, and that was really cool. And then as well, like at the start, like he was sort of talking about how some, um, some newcomers to astronomy are using some of these automated systems and, uh, you know, and, and about how they're, they're going to come along and sort of be observing, uh, sort of alongside, uh, the rest of us just in their own way. Right. I, I thought that was just, you know, just remarkable. Um, you know, he talked about how he, uh, made a lot of notes in that, how he prepares for his podcast, which, uh, which definitely, uh, is very different from how we do it. Um, and I, I, you know, just, just how well thought out he is, maybe is what I'm trying to say is it, it's just mind blowing how well thought out and, and deep thinking he is. Yeah. You know, another thing I'd like to pick his brain a little bit, uh, about is the digital setting circles that he referenced. Yeah. Um, you can add these to a lot of alt as mounts and, you know, for those that haven't, uh, heard of these, or maybe aren't too familiar with digital setting circles, um, basically, you know, what they are is there's an encoder on each axis 
that feeds back to a computer um, that essentially tells you kind of the coordinates of where your telescope is pointed at. And then some of these digital setting circle computers, you can input uh, whatever object you may want to find in there. And then it, it's not a go-to, but it becomes a push-to. And the computer tells you when your telescope is now pointed at the right point to find the object that you're looking for. Mm -hmm. So it can really expedite finding things, um, particularly uh, like if you're in maybe some light pollution where you're having a hard time uh, seeing some naked eye stars, uh, digital setting circles, or even a go-to really for that matter can, can help get you there a little faster. Um, so I've always been intrigued by them, um, because they're sort of like that in between compromise of like, absolutely no tech in the field, like how you and I normally observe, mm -hmm. but you know, they're not quite as advanced as a go-to, which means they also don't come with some of the headaches that go-tos some, you know, will sometimes introduce, uh, in the field. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've, I'm intrigued by them. I I've tried to use manual setting circles before in the past. And, uh, if you have, if you have a mount that has, uh, like when it comes to manual setting circles, most EQ mounts have them. Um, but a lot of the EQ mounts, like the setting circle scale is almost unusable because, um, it's not very accurate or, uh, it, um, it's just not a large enough scale, I guess. And then it's hard to get precise measurements, but, um, on my Los Mandy, uh, EQ mount, the setting circles are really nice and I've used them a few times and they are awesome. Like they make the observing session a lot smoother, uh, from the backyard. Yeah. And I mean, I do use my EZ, uh, GTI, uh, you know, in the field, uh, a fair bit now, although like coin toss 50, 50, um, I don't even turn the power on, on it. And then, uh, sometimes what I'll do like the other 50% of the time is I'll just get it on an object. If I'm going to sketch, I'll just flip the tracking on. Um, but yeah, typically I'm not, I don't think I've, I've ever really used the go-to. I think I used it enough to realize it wasn't quite accurate enough for what I was trying to do. And then after I sent it back to the shop, um, because the azimuth bound, uh, when it came back, I noticed that it was extremely accurate because I just thought, oh, I wonder if the go-to is more accurate now. And then when it came back, it seemed like the go-to was was pretty much uh, perfect as long as it was you went through the proper process of leveling it and doing the alignment and that sort of thing. But uh, anyway, yeah, I, I don't really use the the go-to as much, but uh, do do much enjoy the uh, just the tracking capability is is a real dream when you're uh, trying to switch around powers uh, in order to. Uh, you know, you know, see what the object looks like under different magnifications. I, I really appreciate the tracking for that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's a nice luxury and can really enhance some observing, uh, particularly if you're sketching, I would imagine it's almost essential then. Yeah. Like at high, at higher power for sure. Like when I was doing those Meyer sketches in 2020, um, there's no way I could have done those without the tracking. I mean, it just would have been if there's no way, like, cause I was using it at times, I forget like 350 power, whatever it was. And, uh, you know, you tap the telescope and, you know, like Mars, like would go right out of the 70 degree field of view and then back to the other side out of the field of view again, because I don't know how big the 70 degree field of view is at, at 350 power, whatever it was, but, uh, it's pretty, pretty small, like less than a quarter of a degree anyway. So uh, yeah, before we go too far, too much further, just wanted to, uh, put this in, uh, one of the questions that we didn't get to with Don was, uh, recommended books. And, and this one, 
I was really interested because I, I own this book. Um, like I said, I have the Messy Marathon Observer's Guide, Handbook and Atlas, a complete guide to running your own Messy Marathon by Don McColls. And um, he is still self-publishing this book. Uh, this is this is how I originally got the book. Um, boy, like almost pretty close to 30 years ago now, he, uh, he did a second edition and is self-publishing it. And apparently he said uh, to us after the, after the recording chain that uh, the version that I have is, has been going for like $50 used online. And it's a paper copy with a plastic binding. Um, it, it's a good quality workbook because I've had mine that long. And yeah, it's a little bit dinged up or whatever, but um, the paper is very good quality. And uh, the information is, uh, is great. It was the first Deep Sky book um, for observing that I bought. And I think it's excellent. And if people want to order their own, they don't have to pay $50 uh, for an old used copy like mine. You can get a brand new copy from Don directly. Uh, they're $35 um, plus postage, I believe. And uh, anyway, you can write Don. Uh, he gave us the email address for, for those orders, which is dontheastronomer at gmail.com. And uh, I believe all people have to do is just uh, email him and say that they would like to buy a copy of his Messy Marathon Observer's Guide book. And uh, what's so great about it is that uh, it's a guidebook on observing all of the messy objects. Plus, he's got um, charts in there that are just excellent that uh, that he's kind of uh, made up with, with all the objects. And it really does guide you through. So even if maybe you're not interested as much in doing a marathon, um, which is not how I used it. I used it once for doing a marathon, which was fun. Um, but this is the book that I used for observing all of the messy objects. And that's how it was recommended to me by somebody and, and said, Oh, go and get in touch with this person. He'll sell you a, a copy. It's, you know, it's a paper bound copy. It's, you know, self-published, but it is, uh, it's excellent. And he's, he's a meticulous guy, Shane, eh? Like, I mean, you're really, mm -hmm. you're really getting a quality, um, in-depth analysis of observing how, how to observe mm -hmm. and, and how to observe all the messy objects for, uh, for 35 bucks. So I think, I think it's a pretty good deal. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great deal. And you know, there's a cool factor that you're getting it directly from the person that wrote it. So that's uh, you know, that's a neat opportunity. You, you really, you don't get that every time. Most of these books go off to a publisher and then you're dealing with, you know, third parties and fourth parties and, and things like that. So it's kind of neat that this is directly from Don. Yeah. And again, um, like if, if it goes at a pub publication again, because it, it might, cause he is self-publishing it. I get the mm -hmm. feeling like he's uh, probably just um, created like a limited run. And then, um, then again, like the price just doubles, like, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, like all good astronomy books, um, even though it's not from a publisher. Um, but he has, I think he, he did have a book on the messy objects that was in publication then out of publication. I think it was with like Cambridge university press and, uh, Anyhow, Don is an extremely reputable person. Uh, I had no problem uh, all that time ago uh, sending him, uh, I think, a check at that time. Now he probably takes some sort of digital payment. I, I don't know. You'd have to check with him. And I think uh, that this is uh, not only an excellent book on how to observe all the messy objects, it's it's a good book on how to observe. Um, and uh, and he is somebody who gives back to the astronomy community. And, and you and I have been the fortunate recipients of, uh, of his generosity. So you know, we're really supporting somebody who, uh, who's trying to make the astronomy world a better place for everybody. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yep. Good stuff. How was your week? 
Uh, not too bad. Um, no astronomy. I think last night might have been one of the only nights where I think we had some clearness. Um, and that didn't last long. I think by about 10, 1030, uh, it was fairly cloudy. Um, and prior to that, we had my parents over for supper. So nice. I, I did not have any observing time last night. Nice. What did you bake them? What did you cook them? Uh, we got some takeout actually. Nice. <laughs> we, oh, took no, the, that's good. we took the easy way out. My, my parents have never had East Indian food. Uh, my wife and I love it. Wow. So we introduced them to, to that cuisine and it was fantastic. Wow. Yes. We used to, uh, make, we used to make a curry, one curry or another it was like Thursday nights back when we were in university because, um, we lived in a, in, uh, in a place that had, uh, quick and easy access to all kinds of amazing, um, uh, cuisine, essential, uh, cooking elements, you know, at our, at our local, um, you know, stores and that sort of thing, just because of where we lived. And so, yeah, we, we made curries every night. And one of the best East Indian restaurants was at the end of our driveway in the apartment building that we lived in. So yeah, we, we, uh, we, we love, love, love that as well. So very cool. Cool. Yeah. Good yeah. stuff. And uh, yeah, I, I, I noticed that it was somewhat clear the night before last too, but you know, the moon is up and mm-hmm. we're, we're going through a big temperature change here. So we were down into the minus thirties again last week with the wind. And now we are flirting with uh, above zero temperatures and we're a little bit concerned all this snow is going to melt. I think that the drift that's in behind my place uh, it's about 12 feet high now, and it's running at in parts, it's about 400 feet long, I think. So um, that that's a lot of snow out there. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there is a lot of snow We're we're moving into some quite warm temperatures like plus eight this week. Um, and potentially clear skies. So yeah, hopefully it doesn't get too wet out there, but, uh, the exciting part for me is, is I think we are getting back into some observing conditions here real soon. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. We were chatting as well, uh, earlier on this morning about, uh, you know, when, when my place should clear out and the, uh, you know, the spot where we park there, there's two or three spots you can park. And those Mm -hmm. are the spots that are going to melt first. Um, which is great. And, uh, you know, there's, there's lots of spots and the neighbors were all super, super great. I don't think people are going to mind if, if we, uh, you know, set up telescopes uh, on the side of the road or whatever out there, uh, I think everybody's pretty cool. So, um, yeah, I might, might be doing that, uh, hopefully sooner, sooner than later, as soon as mm-hmm. it's not too, too muddy, uh, it can be muddy there for sure. But sometimes we get those nights where it's melting in the day, but the ground's still frozen and anything that's on the surface just kind of just kind of freezes up a bit and, uh, and it's no problem. Cool. All right. Uh, yeah. So I've been plugging away on, uh, on some of that Kemble stuff. Um, so far I've transposed the list that was in the, uh, deep sky magazine and had to copy it all over into like uh, basically like a spreadsheet. And then I updated all the information from, uh, Wolfgang Steinecke. So he's, 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 I think the one that probably has the best and most updated, um, information as far as like coordinates, magnitudes and object types and all that. Uh, he wrote the book on the, um, NGC and the IC, uh, a few years ago. I, f- I forget what it was called. Exactly. They have one of his books here, but only that one. Um, and then I plotted them all in urinometria, but yeah, there's still one, you know, I don't, I don't know if you've observed like the heart and the soul nebulae before Shane. Yeah, uh, very faintly. I remember it uh, when we were in grasslands. Grasslands, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like even there, under you know outstanding skies, there 
there wasn't it was extremely extremely faint yeah 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 Yeah, they're they're tough to tough to see and there's there's one uh, ngc 896 which Kemble observed and then he also observed ic i think it's 1795 or 1705 it's one or the other and um he was comparing 896 to a variety of different things um i thought they were separate nebulae and Kemble drew them as separate nebulae um, but then I see in Steinecke, I think he says they're they're just one. Um, but when you actually look at Uranometria, it has them split into the two that I kind of thought they were. Um, so I, I don't know. It's sort of, it, I think it almost doesn't matter. Like people are making calls when they're going through this, um, like the data, right? Like they're making calls as they as they look at an object for one for one person. They might okay, this is just all the same thing for the next person. They're okay, it's it's two different objects. So. There, there is a little bit of an element of that uh, to, to going through this kind of stuff and then kind of kind of sorting it out a little bit. It can be a little bit confusing, <laughs> to say the least. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, so yeah, read through uh, some of his articles, uh, observations, uh, had a quick email correspondence with uh, Alan Whitman, who's a contributing editor, Sky and Telescope Magazine. He, he made an interesting observation uh, he had sent me of, an object that uh, that I've been publishing uh, for a few years uh, now. Maybe, maybe he'll write. Maybe he'll write in Sky and Telescope about it and, and, in, and include my my uh, you know my object that I had taken a look at some years ago. Now that'd be cool. Mm-hmm. Well, and um, uh, Ethan, one of our listeners that has the uh, Uni Unistellar Telescope. Yeah. Uh, I think tonight, maybe, or, or recently, he tweeted out anyway that he's hoping to image uh, Kemble's Cascade. Oh, uh, really? Based, based on the episode that we uh, oh, that recently awesome. about Kemble. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was cool. Yeah, that would be really cool. Yeah, I'm really, um, really excited to to see where uh, where Ethan's going uh, in the hobby. Kind of like what Dom was saying in our episode we just recorded with him about uh, how how different people are getting into the hobby in different ways now and, and are observing kind of alongside of us. And I really like that. Uh, and that just d- demonstrates that like he's, he's observing in a different way, but in a way kind of observing alongside of us. And uh, mm-hmm. I think that's super cool. Yeah. Yeah. yeah agreed. Cool. Yep. Yeah. Um, let's see. We've, we've had some emails, um, you know, really appreciate people sending us in uh, emails to, to make sure that we uh, have good material and, and not ramble on too much um, for, uh, for our, for our two episodes, uh, a week had, had an email here from, uh, from Peter. Don't know if you, uh, would you mind, do you want to read this one? Yeah, I'll go through it. Uh, so it begins with, uh, hi, Chris and Shane. I especially enjoyed today's show about father Kemble, uh, an inspiring and perspective changing story by coincidence. I just got a Celestron C5 yesterday. Uh, the backstory is related to my switching to the C8 later in the year. Uh, I was thinking about getting a C6 as well, but they are just, uh, sorry, they, but they are just as unobtainable right now, uh, except on the used market. Uh, but it turns out that Amazon has a supply of C5s. Uh, they are selling them in one place for $749 and in another area for $538. So, and I, I see that on, on our amazon.ca. They're, oh. they're 600 and something, which is a pretty good deal for that telescope. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so Peter says that he chose the latter. It came from the UK. Uh, it's sold as a spotting scope, but I was ready to set it up as a regular SCT. 
Uh, it's a lovely little scope, and I know I'm going to have a lot of fun with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has got some peculi- peculiarities. Uh, That's so a hard put, word to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a weird one. Um, I've put a two-inch visual back on it, but the optical path is narrowed to 1.25 inches in the back. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people do use two inch eyepieces with it though. Um, and then he goes on to say that the effective aperture is less because the central obstruction occupies 39% of the area. Um, and then he says that's true of all SCTs, of course, and we'll have to think about all these things. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very light at six pounds, but it's a bit like handling a football. Uh, I'm thinking to put a rail on top and a mount uh, as a handle. And that can be really handy even for mm-hmm. uh, refractors. I know some people do that. Mm-hmm. Um, the nice thing too with SCTs, just as a sidebar here, yeah, the the moment arm issue that you have with refractors is kind of gone because yeah. you know the these SCTs are a fairly compact telescope. The uh, you know the focal length is created by bouncing you know the light path off of a, a couple mirrors, and um, as such, you get a fairly small telescope and, and it's a little bit easier to mount. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Peter goes on to say, uh, the picture of M42 below was taken, was taken with the scope almost right out of the box last night, but with a 0.63 reducer slash flattener. Uh, so there is 20 exposures of three minutes each that he stacked. Um, it's one of the best I've done so far. Uh, I love how the object fills a frame and that there's good coverage of nebulosity without completely blowing out the core, which Mm -hmm. that's really hard with M42. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if you like, I'm no astrophotographer, but I have, uh, I have taken a couple images of M42 uh, with my 120 millimeter ED refractor. And yeah, if you like, for me anyway, when I was trying to get some of the extent of the nebula, a (laughs) neb. Nebulae, um, it uh, it just blew out the middle like it was so overexposed. So yeah, um, yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful shot, uh, Peter. Really, I good. wondered though he didn't say what he was. Did he say what what mount he had it on, or he didn't include the mount? Eh? I don't know. I, I assume the C five came with a mount. I thought Maybe. it was just a spotting scope. Was it so, just the scope? Okay. Yeah. yeah so I think yeah. he must be mounting on something else. So maybe Peter, you can let us know. Uh, Cause that was a beautiful shot. And I was like, Whoa, that is very, very sharp. Um, yeah, beautiful yeah, job, yeah. beautiful color rendition, very natural looking. Yeah. I was quite impressed. Mm-hmm. Um, very nice. yeah. And then Peter finishes up by saying, uh, in other news inspired by Chris and Mary McIntyre, I picked up an AZ GTI mount. Uh, again, this came from UK or from the UK, uh, from FLO for $300 without the tripod. Uh, they're back ordered in the U S I'm in the process of getting it kitted out for my Twilight One tripod. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an adapter coming from Burlaback and a stronger Vixen shoe from ADM. Uh, hopefully have it up and running next week. All the best from Peter. I think that'll be a that'll be a nice combination. I'm really curious. I, you know, I, I really went and looked at, at these. I was like, well, I wonder how much they're in Canada. And it's a good deal because I think the typical price is like $7.99 or $800, give or take. Right. And I think it's for a C5. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I was like, oh, well, that's all you have pretty much $200 off uh, with that Amazon price. And I was like, I just don't need another small little, little telescope. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's, that's probably a bit much, but, the, but yeah, like when I saw those images, I was like, whoa, those are good little telescopes yeah, still, yeah. you know, and 
Yeah, really. I've always I've always been impressed with the well, like Celestron uh, caster grains. I I don't know if I've ever looked through a bad one to be honest, but Mm. um, the smaller ones I've really been blown away by. Uh, There was there was a member of the Regina Club that I think he still has a C six, and it just blows my mind how it punches above its weight. Like whenever I look through it, I'm always I'm always surprised at what I'm able to see. And I have to look at the, like, just look at the scope to confirm that it is indeed a C6 and not like a C8 or something like that. It just, they're, they're really nice scopes. Um, yeah, I looked at, I was going to get a C6 for a long time. This was when they first came out and I ended up getting just a, like a really great deal on uh, a six inch, uh, Russian Mac, uh, one of the, um, Intis options mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um used and uh from somebody in florida and uh anyway it was just like almost half the price of the c6 so that was the option i went with. that's like maybe 15 years ago now yeah yeah have you considered chris getting the vixen shoe like the adm shoe to put on your az gti i have it you have it yeah i have oh. it but uh i i didn't put it on because um, I noticed that that issue that ended up getting worse with the binding on the bottom. And I was a little bit concerned that if I modded, modded the, uh, the mount with that, cause you kind of have to rip off the, the sticker and, and, and maybe they, they would, they never mentioned anything when, when I sent it back, but I was a little bit concerned about doing that level of modification. But, uh, once I get it out a few more times, I may, I may come knocking and, uh, and see if you can help me swap that, uh, that out. Cause you have to like, um, you know, uh, unscrew the, the uh, one that's in there now it's, it's, you know, a little bit of a process. It's not, mm. not too bad, but, uh, I feel like you'd be, uh, you'd be a good resource for me to tap into when it comes up. Yeah. I bought one. Yeah. Yeah. I bought it. Looks good. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'd like to, I'd like to do that sooner than later for sure. Now that I have it uh, running properly. Yeah. And, and it can really make a difference adding like a better, um, dovetail shoe onto your mount. And, uh, like my real life example is I have the, um, explore scientific twilight Two mount. You've seen it before. I've had it out many, many times. Um, what I did is like, it came with kind of the standard, I don't know, I call it a puck almost, uh, like a puck shoe. Like it's kind of a round shoe. It accepts your Vixen dovetail. Um, but it's not very big and there's not a lot of, um, pressure applied to the Vixen dovetail. Like it's a, it's a small point. Mm. And, um, so I replaced, uh, one side with, uh, the ADM Vixen shoe and it's, you know, oh, geez, I think it's about six or seven inches long. Yeah. So like it really, it really snugs down on like a much larger portion of your dovetail. Yeah. And it did make it more stable. Like I had less vibration at the eyepiece after I put that shoe on. So it certainly can make a difference. And, you know, it's one of these things like you and I've talked a lot about you buy a telescope, then you spend some time, you know, getting better rings or doing, you know, small changes, modifications to enhance its performance you know, one of the things you can do with your mount is put on a better shoe, depending on what it came with. And that shoe can add some stability. Yeah, I was actually a little, little bit of a tangent here, I suppose, but I was uh, watching some videos by Skywatcher. I think each week or so they have a Skywatcher video uh, that, that gets put out by their product specialist in, in the States. I'm not sure where he is exactly. And uh, somebody had asked something similar to this 
about knobs and and attaching uh, plates and this sort of thing. And, uh, you know, hey, has Skywatcher ever considered uh, doing this, that, or the other thing? And he said, no, look, uh, ADM does this, just go buy the part from them. So, so I actually don't know. I, I, you know, I almost would like to interview them because one, I do really like the Skywatcher products. And then two, I was really, I was really curious that they pretty much like just, you know, recommended people go, to go to EDM. So I'm not sure if they would uh, balk too much. Like if they got it in, they're like, oh, it's an ADM part. So no worries. Like maybe, maybe it's totally fine. I, I almost wouldn't mind kind of pressing them on that a bit, uh, just just to see what the actual story is, uh, since they were recommending that for. In this case, it was it wasn't the AZ GTI. It was the uh, the AZ six uh, EQ or the the six EQZ or or I can't remember the the product name, but uh, it's it's their uh, their their larger or their largest uh, AZ Equatorial mount. Um, but anyway, yeah, they, they were actually recommending people to go to to EDM and gave the guy's name and website address, like the whole bit. So they, they definitely weren't averse to to recommending those parts. So it kind of made me feel a little bit better about uh, just slapping it on there and, and just not worrying about it because uh, Skywatcher seemed to give them give them the endorsement and indicated that they wouldn't be uh, changing out any of their stuff because uh, it would just add too much on the, the get and going cost of things, which a lot of people... Uh, might might balk at and not get the product. So anyway, yeah. that's my bit on that. Yeah. And just just a quick note: ADM is a company. Uh, if if you're not oh, yeah. familiar with that, ADM is a uh, a company online. I think they're located in the U.S. Um, but they make dovetails, they make shoes, they make uh, a few other things too. So it's a, it's a neat place if you're looking for some accessories for your mount or. Like I say, there's a few other sort of odds and ends that they make, like counterweights and stuff like that. Um, check it out if you've never been there. It's a, it's a good resource. Yeah, you can go to admaccessories.com. And uh, like Shane said, they, they make a variety of plates for both Vixen and uh, Lasmity. Um, you know, uh, plates and different telescope uh, mounts, including the uh, AZ GTI um, and lots of the other um, mounts by Skywatcher. Uh, and others, and it's uh, yeah, it's it's pretty good stuff. But yeah, I have it have it sitting on my thing, and they're also available. You don't have to buy direct; you can buy direct from them. I think I did buy directly from EDM because uh, it just didn't matter. But you can also buy them uh, their products through like Ontario Telescopes, High Point Scientific, OPT, First Light Optics, which is FLO, uh, lots lots of other telescope stores. Uh, telescopes Plus, one of our favorites, um, also carry all of their stuff uh, as well. So you can buy them from. Uh, direct from the company, or you can buy them from a reseller, and uh, it's all about the same price, I think. Um, but yeah, I just ordered direct, and uh, yeah, paid for the duty or whatever as it came over the border. Yeah, right on. Cool. All right, uh, we have an email from Chris. Can I read Chris's email? Chris reading Chris. Chris, Chris reading Chris. Let's do it. Yeah. So uh, he also wrote uh, wrote wrote about uh, the Kimball episode that we did, episode two hundred three. So. Uh, Chris says, hi, Chris and Shane. Really enjoyed show number 203. You did a great job of humanizing Kemble and the Cascade. I've not spent enough time with it, uh, but we'll make sure it's on the list. My ears also perked up when you discussed Pazimo's cluster. While I don't know him personally, John is a member of my club and I've talked to him a few times. I noticed his cluster in the Jumbo Star Atlas. I guess, I think, is that the Jumbo Pocket Atlas? Is that what it is? Must yeah, be. yeah, that's my assumption. Yeah. After the last time uh, speaking with him, my club 
had taken a bus trip to the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia to see the Museum of the Moon exhibit uh, that was there. It was right before the pandemic started. Side story about that trip was that Dr. Darren or Derek Pitts, the chief astronomer of the Institute, uh, is a friend of one of the uh, other club members, and they had an amazing treated view of the double-double through the rooftop observatory's 10-inch Zeiss refractor. I think both our ears perked up on that one. <laughs> yeah, I, I replied to Chris and said yeah. uh, I had to pick myself up off the floor. Uh, a 10-inch Zeiss refractor would be incredible to look through. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I actually appreciate you writing back because I, I read Chris's email and I was, I was reading um, uh, the, the, the link in the notes that, uh, that he had sent me. Um, but I just got slammed with work at the end of last week and, uh, and just wasn't able to, to reply to all the emails I, I typically would. So, um, yeah, going on serendipity, also, Chris goes on to say serendipity also treated us to an ISS flyover, bright meteor, even in the light polluted sky. Um, and he mentions that John, John Pazimo was an ardent reseller of the RESC handbook each year, uh, but has been unable to perform the service due to the COVID challenges. Uh, over the past two years. So he said, you prompted me to check out John Pazmo's site. And I read his article about the discovery of the cluster. Uh, you can find that at www.nyskies.org slash articles slash Pazmo slash pazclus.htm. That's P-A-Z-C-L-U-S. Uh, the club he mentions is the club that uh, I belong to, Chris says, which is the Amateur Observers Society of New York here on Long Island. Uh, and that's where Chris is the editor of the Celestial Observer, AKACO. I'm also the webmaster of their site, which is uh, www.aosny.org. Uh, hope you enjoy the article. I sure did. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. Um, and then he goes on to say that uh, Shane loved the tap forms. He's been using it for over a year for tracking my gear and other stuff. Great choice. So yeah, that was, that was a jam packed one. And yeah, I kind of went down a bit of a rabbit hole and there's some other articles I think on there um, by uh, John Pasimo and uh, man, I'd love to talk to that guy. I think I really love Pasimo's cluster. Um, I, I had also discovered it like 20 years or 30 years too late. It was one of the first uh, clusters that, that I kind of just ran across and was like, whoa, that is something. And of course, it, it was Pasmo's cluster and, and had looked it up. Um, but yeah, it's just this beautiful little cluster sort of off Milky Way and uh, up there in, I think it's on like the Camelopardalus uh, Cassiopeia border, something like that. And uh, yeah, yeah, great, great little cluster. Maybe it's, yeah, anyway. So it's up there. Be great to talk to him. It's it's a really really neat uh, neat object. Have you seen Pasimo's cluster? I don't know if I have. Uh, as you were reading this email, I, I was trying to think back, and I I don't think so. You you may have like just even looked at it through uh, my telescope because uh, I've often often had the uh, the cluster in in my scope. I think it's actually cataloged as stock. 23 open cluster. I think that's, that's the one. Yes, that's, that's the one. Yeah. I'm just kind of looking up here off the top of my head, but yeah, it's in Camelopardalus and it's got like these orange, uh, yellowish stars. I, I think I see one of them is very orange and then, uh, some V uh, patterns appear and it's, yeah, it's, it's super, super cool, super cool cluster, very bright, has some bright stars and some fainter stars. So it's one of those clusters that looks great under a light polluted sky. looks great at a dark sky. Um, it's, it's just a really, really nice cluster, but, um, Jurgen stock, 
I was I was reading about this in the uh, articles that Chris had sent. Jurgen Stock had um, cataloged it as Stock Twenty Three, but Jurgen Stock wasn't creating um, like a catalog of new objects. It's not like he was going out and and creating like a fresh catalog of okay, these things haven't been observed before or discovered before. Um, he uh, Jurgen Stock. Um, believed that this was already a found cluster because it was so bright and obvious and blah, blah, blah. So he simply cataloged it. And I think it was measuring like the radial velocities of stars or spectrum or something like that. I can't remember what it was exactly in larger open clusters um, and had done his work and kind of moved along, not realizing that that was a novel discovery. And then John Pasmo came along, I think just a few years later, I think these, these, uh, these two folks were working in the seventies. I think uh, stock cataloged, um, it is part of his, um, as his survey in like the early seventies. And then it was just like a few years later in the late seventies, that Pasimo actually ran across it and said, this is a new cluster. And it hadn't been in the charts. It was uncharted. Um, because I, I think people had realized that Jurgen stock was just simply uh, going through some of these other known clusters. Um, but anyway, had, had actually made a, a legitimate discovery there. And then of course, Pasimo reported it and then it was later kind of linked up, but it was hundred percent total ind- independent discovery. So pr- pretty interesting story there. Just like, and he was just out, uh, John Pasimo was just out like, like observing one night kind of with, uh, like a, like a little refractor kind of, it sounds like something like, like our ST eighties equivalent in the, in the 1970s at the time. So, uh, pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, should I move on to the next Go one? Go for it. Okay. So, uh, Clark, who's been on the show before, um, wrote us and I lived vicariously through this email for multiple reasons. <laughs> <laughs> that was a cold day when he wrote us from it Mexico. Was a, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, the first part is, is Clark is on a, a nice winter vacation to a sunny latitude. And, uh, so living vicariously through that experience. And uh, I always appreciate hearing observing reports from, you know, Southern latitudes or more South than where we are. So it's pretty cool. Um, So Clark wrote, hello, Chris and Shane. Uh, I did manage to get up at 2 a.m. and haul myself out to the beach in Mexico on the Gulf. Uh, My latitude is about 21 degrees north. Uh, The very warm Gulf water, I believe, makes for perpetually poor transparency, (laughs) especially near the horizon. Yeah. Um, which is too bad. Cause, uh, you know, when you're that far South, I, I think, you know, the horizon just teases you more and more and more. Yeah. Um, so Clark goes on to say, despite some clouds and local light pollution, the Southern cross was seen low to the South as it was nice. uh, transiting at the time. Uh, yeah, that is really cool. Um, the jewel box cluster in crux was seen in my seven by 50 binoculars, but was uninspiring due to the conditions. Uh, I noted that Crux uh, has been seen way below and directly due south of Corvus when both constellations are transiting. Uh, Both of these constellations are similarly tiny, with Crux being the smallest of all all 88. Uh, Their four-star asterism appears to be the same size in area. The cross, however, is much brighter. Uh, To the east of Crux lies Alpha and Beta Centauri, uh, two very bright stars that point to the cross. Uh, the other notable observation was the area of sky of Eastern Centaurus and Lupus. Uh, there might be, or sorry, the area might be the size of the Big Dipper asterism, uh, but has an incredible amount of bright stars, especially in the second and third magnitude range. Uh, it might be the richest part of the entire sky uh, with stars of such brightness. Uh, 
And then uh, Clark says, see page 48 of the pocket sky Atlas. And then after 10 minutes, he said he went back to bed, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, pretty cool uh, observation. Um, I like it for a couple of reasons that I haven't mentioned too. Like uh, again, just the simplicity of binoculars and naked eye observing, um, you know, is so pleasing sometimes. And especially, I think, you know, when I go to different latitudes, I really do like the naked eye aspect just to see how different the sky looks. Um, we, my wife and I were in Cuba two years ago, I think it was just before the pandemic hit. So whatever that would have been 2019, 2020, um, we were there for a wedding and it was just fascinating to see how different the sky looks from, you know, about 20 degrees North. Um, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Very cool. And it was kind of doing those sort of trips with just binoculars that really prompted me to get my, uh, 60 millimeter scope because I, I wanted sort of, uh, the ultimate portable little, little refractor to be able to, uh, take in a big swath of sky. So yeah, that was, uh, yeah, that was really neat. No, I really, uh, really appreciate that email, uh, from, from Clark. So yeah, good stuff. Well, Shane, anything else to add to uh, this episode? No, that's everything, Chris. All right. Well, uh, thanks again uh, for having a chat. If people want to send us their observations, we really appreciate it because uh, our skies have, have been so poor, but fingers crossed we're into warmer weather now, hopefully. And uh, you can always send those into actualastronomy at gmail.com. And we always appreciate it when people like subscribe or send us a review um, you know, of our podcast, because that, that helps out the algorithms, helps out people uh, to find us. And uh, yeah, in general, we, we just really appreciate it. So thanks again uh, to everybody out there for listening. Thank you everyone for listening. And we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>